This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. This is Play-By-Playcast, the podcast for play-by-play broadcasters about play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. My name is Joel Godet. Thanks, as always, for clicking subscribe or hitting download. Joining us here on a Friday morning for what is our second two-part guest. We had Adam Amin of ESPN on back, I believe, episodes 10 and 11 was our very first two-episode guest. Patrick Keenis of the Durham Bulls and Westwood One is our second two-part guest. He'll be episodes 46 and 47 this week and next. Two very uh, different conversations in terms of what we discuss. It was all one big conversation. Could have done it as one episode. We would have been here for about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, Let's be honest. We're probably listening to this on the treadmill or in the car. And if you're doing it on the treadmill... That's a really long time at the gym, and if you're doing it in the car, that is a terribly long commute. So we chopped this up and uh, and made it into two episodes. Uh, One will focus more on baseball and his time climbing through the minor league ranks and now currently with the Durham Bulls. Next week's episode will focus a lot on the Rio Olympics and working for Westwood One uh, in several different capacities. But, uh, but really hone in on some really interesting stuff about broadcasting in the Olympics and how Patrick uh, did swimming, how swimming works uh, on radio in the Olympics, how he prepared, how he got to know a new sport, uh, capturing the moments of Michael Phelps and Lily King and kind of the directives and whole lot, how all of that works. There's some interesting kind of inside baseball talk that I don't think we think about on the regular. Uh, so that'll all come up next week as well. We'll do baseball and such, uh, and the rest of kind of his early career arc here on episode one. Before we get to uh, Patrick, though, we are, of course, a broadcasting podcast, a play-by-play podcast, and that being said, I don't want to dive too much into it, because who am I at the end of the day, but I did want to mention the the layoffs, of course, are are the news that uh, that has dominated broadcasting this week at ESPN on Wednesday, First of all, sad day for everybody affected by that. Um, And as an industry as a whole, kind of a sad day for journalism and a reminder of really kind of the changing face of the media landscape consistently. You could say that about all sorts of different types of media, uh, but it's very much changing. And those changes have real world consequences in a lot of different ways. Uh, and I thought what was interesting in terms of the the particulars of the people that were laid off, uh, you saw a lot of Sports Center anchors. Uh, baseball tonight will, and baseball coverage will look very different, I think, going into the future with the people that were directly affected by this. But you know, I said sad day for journalism because a lot of reporters and a lot of really good reporters will no longer be with ESPN going forward, and that's Brett McMurphy 
who I had the pleasure to get to know when I worked in South Florida and he was at the Tampa Tribune, uh, which no longer exists. Talk about the changing face of media. Uh, Brett McMurphy is tremendous at his job. Uh, Jason Stark, who is, we talked about the changing face of baseball. I, how do you have baseball on ESPN without a guy like Jason Stark, Jane McManus as well? Uh, I'm sure there will be much more talk about this in more depth from people that are far more qualified to talk about it. Um, if you listen to SI Media Podcast with Richard Deitch, I am sure he will go into it this week uh, or in his next episode in some way, shape, or form. Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, he can give you the full information on that as well. Um, but in a lot of ways, just a, a sad day for the industry. But on the same note, I think it will be very interesting to follow this going forward. Because Ed Werder even said, I mean, he said on Twitter he's not retiring. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where these people go and what kind of new projects they become a part of uh, as they embark on their new endeavors, be that for another network or their own thing, uh, how they shape their careers differently going forward. I think that will be very interesting, uh, both in the present, but also uh, how that impacts things in the future and what directions different people go uh, again, with the changing face of media, but also sports media. So that's my two cents on all of that, um, just to put that out there. Uh, on to Patrick Kinas, our guest today, who was a guy that got into minor league baseball out of college, well, while he was in college, sort of. He'll detail the whole thing. I'll let him do the, the explanation of it. Uh, but really climbed his way up the minor league ranks. I mean, really gritted his way up the minor league ranks. At one point, and we don't talk about it on the podcast, but Patrick and I did talk about it just sitting chatting. Um, we recorded this interview when the Durham Bulls came to play the Indianapolis Indians. Um, what, a week ago now? Uh, we, we sat in the lobby at the team hotel in, uh, in downtown Indy. And uh, while we were talking before we hit record, Patrick was talking about his climb through the minors and also... Now, at one point in time when he was broadcasting the Carolina Mudcats, not working for the Mudcats, he was self-employed and did all the selling on his own and and basically founded his own media rights company uh, and that still exists, that still does some selling of advertising and things of that nature. Um, but that is an interesting swerve in his minor league career as well. So we get into to his stepladder through baseball. Uh, the way that he has branched out and networked and kind of dug roots into a lot of different things in North Carolina now since he's been there with the Carolina Mudcats, the Durham Bulls, um, all the different stops he's had, NC State, Elon, uh, whoever he's worked for in North Carolina and how he has gotten his kind of tentacles on and around a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, and then his, uh, his belief in storytelling and how he storytells. So we'll hit on uh, all of those topics here on uh, episode one. Where we start, though, uh, you know, we're recording this toward the beginning of baseball season, so I asked the basic question. <laughs> How's the beginning of baseball season going for a guy getting started in, uh, in another uh, grueling summer of minor league baseball? We start there with Patrick Keenis here on Play by Play Cast. It's chaos. So when you're working for a team, you're around... I didn't get involved in the radio side of things as far as 
accumulating our spots, putting our formats together, getting everything that the radio stations, our network needed until about March 31st, which is tight. So the reason is, is that we're so, the Durham Bulls and most Miley teams are just so driven toward closing deals and getting all of the inventory sold and making sure that the artwork is in and the LED graphics are in. So for me, the, the shift in focus from sales to broadcasting occurs very late in the game. But once I got on the road with the first road trip, when the Bulls opened up in Gwinnett, you start to fall back in that routine. So by the time that we got back off of that first road trip, it's now the home opener for the Bulls. I'm in my routine, so I'm in my own lane feeling good about things four games in, and there's mass panic in our office about, you know, are these signs up, and where's the beer carts, and where is, you know, where is this, and we, where's, where's the paint for the logo on the field, things like that. But I'm, I tap out of those elements. Yeah, it's almost, you're, you're almost better off winding up starting on the road because you get out of some of that craziness, yeah. don't you? Yeah, I like it. I like it that way. Coming on the road, it's not that it's a vacation, but it just allows you a little bit more time to catch your breath and, and keep life in order. So whether it's you know paying bills online or banking or a little reading or catching up on a little bit of sleep, uh, those are things that you really don't have enough time to do during homestands because the, it's just hurry up, let's go, let's go. There's a long laundry list of things to get done. But when I'm on a bus 11 hours from Chapel Hill to, uh, to Indianapolis last night, you know, I just write down dozens and dozens of things that I need to check off my to-do list. And that's one of the few times, even in the not-so-peaceful environment of a, of a bus with minor league players on it, still gives me, gives me an opportunity to put the headphones on, noise cancellation button is on, and just try to knock out some things personally and professionally that I've put off for a week. Uh, I'm curious about your climb through minor league baseball. And obviously you've been with Durham now for... What is this? Six years? This is year six. Um, but I know you started in in Clinton, Iowa. Uh, so if you can take me way back to the beginning uh, of of how you wound up with the Lumber Kings and and kind of what you were thinking from the get go in this career. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying way back because it makes it sound like I've been around. It's it's crazy. To Sorry. Think. Back in two thousand one. Yeah. yeah. So so nineteen ninety three was my first year in pro ball. So this is actually my twenty fifth year. I still feel like I'm twenty five years old. So I can't believe that so much time has gone by so fast. So how I got the, the Clinton job, and as you know, Joel, there's no blueprint to getting into this industry, staying in this industry. I've been fired nearly twice. Uh, I got my job in Clinton because, short story, I was, uh, so I grew up in just south of Chicago, had an internship between my junior and senior, se- senior years at Milliken, which is in Decatur, Illinois. I had an internship lined up to, at WGN. So in July of 1991, this would have been, I was at an affiliate party, which was a party at the Chicago Hyatt for all of the Chicago Cubs and Chicago Bears affiliates that Tribune Radio Networks hosted. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of GMs, operation managers, uh, program directors are all at this event. Jim Essine was there. Harry Carey was there. It was a big just kind of gala thank you for all their affiliates around the Midwest. Well, as 21-year-old interns, and there were several of us, that was the last place we wanted to be. We didn't know anybody. We didn't care to meet anybody. We just wanted to go on a rush street and drink. But this was mandated that we go to this. So we're at the back of the room, again, just a sea of people surrounding us. And my girlfriend at the time wanted, speaking of drinking, she wanted another beer. So I grab her glass and I start to snake my way through to get a refill. 
and was walking past this group of people and somebody hit me on the elbow that was carrying the glass and whatever backwash was was in this glass flipped out of the glass onto a gentleman's tie in a suit right in front of me i'm petrified thinking what is the reaction going to be to this this you know young little idiot now just ruined a tie of obviously a fairly important person at this at this event turned out he looked at my name tag and said Patrick from Tribune Radio Networks, what do you want to do with your life? Okay, I want to be a play-by-play guy in pro baseball. And so we, we chit-chatted. Turned out his name was Stephen Trivers. He owned a group of four radio stations in Kalamazoo. And after about a five-minute conversation, he said, you know, I got a guy, a good friend of mine, who's probably here at this event over in Iowa who's trying to pitch to acquire the minor league rights for a team over there. Let's tr- see if we can go find him. So didn't even get the beer filled, so I just I walk away with Stephen Trivers. Again, we go to the other side of the, of the Hyatt, and he introduces me to the owner of KCLN 97.7 FM in Clinton, Iowa, and he's wasted. Gene <laughs> Kaufman is drunk. Uh, but he's surrounded by other members of his staff. Jim Bartlett was his operations manager. So as Stephen introduced me to Gene, all of a sudden Gene is you know, on top of the world saying, you're going to be on our play-by-play guy. We're going to get the rights. And he doesn't even remember this conversation. And after about 10 minutes, I'm all excited thinking, this is it. This is my entree to, to professional baseball. Conversation ends. They say, send us your information. As I'm about to walk away, the sober one of their group, Jim Bartlett, pulls me aside and said, just so you know, Gene did not offer you the job. Send us your cassette. Send us your resume. We'll give it a listen. They didn't know who I was. So sure enough, I go back you know, a couple of weeks later, put my cassette tape together because that's what you did back then. You didn't have a CD. It was all on audio cassette, and it was tough to edit because you didn't have Adobe Audition. So I sent him a couple of cassettes of some uh, football games that I did with Milliken against Augustana, the D3 power at the time, and sat there and waited. They received it. So another year goes by, and I didn't have a job coming out of college. And I had, as a last resort, applied to grad school didn't want to go to grad school. I rarely, I didn't even really want to go to college. But as a, just as a fallback, because I didn't have a job coming out of college, uh, I applied to three, SIU, Illinois, and Northwestern. Figured Illinois would be the school that I could tolerate going to, although I was not a Illini fan. Uh, SIU offered me a fellowship down there, but I really didn't want to go there. And Northwestern, my dream school as a kid, because my oldest brother went there, I figured I had no chance of getting in. And SIU offered me the fellowship. Illinois rejected me. And NU, the day before I graduated from Millican, there was a big fat envelope in the mailbox. That's a really good sign when you're applying to grad schools. And I was stunned. So I was accepted there and decided to go there only because I didn't have a job that I wanted. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to get a job. And so go to Evanston. It's a quarter system there. So in October of my first quarter, I get a phone call on a Saturday morning from Gene Kaufman, and Gene Kaufman says, we are pitching the rights to this minor league baseball team today to try and pull it away from the competing station. If we get this, do you want the job? Sure, absolutely. So two hours later, phone rings again. Things went well. I think we're going to get the rights, and sure enough, like the following Monday, they were awarded the rights, which was huge for them because the AM station in Clinton had the rights for 30 or 40 years. 
and Gene was a new owner of this FM station and trying to make a splash in that market. And so the following spring, I leave NU. I go call the first year of Clinton Giants baseball at that stage in 93 with Jack Mull as our manager, and uh, Jackie Nickel was the opening day pitcher for Appleton. And Aaron Fultz was on that team. He wanted to get into the big leagues. Uh, Chad Fonville was on that team, got to the big leagues. And then I went back and finished up grad school when that fall finished because it was a seasonal position and $1,000 a month for five months and 392 bucks after taxes were taken out every two weeks and then went back to grad school and finished up. So there's my long and winding <laughs> story on how I got into pro baseball and why I can't get out. So the moral of the story is spill somebody's drink uh, and see where that leads you. Uh, <laughs> Heavy drinking, yes. Uh, how long did it take you to feel, that's a seasonal job at that point, to feel like, okay, I can make a living doing this? 12 years. Yeah, I was in, I was in Clinton as a seasonal employee for four, went to Kane County. What did you do in the off-seasons? I was a bartender at a bowling alley. I went back to grad school to finish. I picked up a lot of odd jobs, but I was the worst bartender around. I was a big bowler when I was a kid, so that was kind of a second home for me. But yeah, I didn't know what was in a rum and coke. It was that, that ridiculous. But just a bunch, a bunch of odd jobs, and I, I leached off of my dad for a couple of, a couple of off seasons. Self-esteem was shot. I mean, here I, you know, now I have my master's degree from Northwestern, one of the best schools in the country, and I'm filling out my taxes, reporting like $8,000 a year of income. It was, it was, it really, it was kind of embarrassing. So you kind of almost got to the point where, well, when do I make the call if I'm sticking in this industry or not? So when I got the full-time job with the Kane County Cougars in 97, it was my first year-round full-time employment with benefits, with health, and health insurance, but it was 18 grand a year living in Chicago. You're living at a budget deficit every month, but you're doing a really cool job. So this, the scales are, aren't necessarily tip one way or the other. Some days they tip higher in terms of, I really love my job, love my life. Other times they tip the other way where, I don't know how I'm gonna be able to survive like this. So I was there for a couple of years and about to get let go. And fortunately, a friend of mine, Dave Schultz, who then was in Jacksonville, Florida with the Suns, but I met him in the Midwest League, he called me up and said, I think there's going to be an opening in my league. Are you interested? Hang tight. He wouldn't tell me what the team was. So, plus, he didn't know my situation with Kane County. And I called him back a few days later and said, I need to know what team it is. And Dave, as we called him, the Peter Gammons of minor league baseball, finally confessed to me what the team was. So... I didn't know, have any context. As you know, in sports, it's all about networks and context and who you know or how many degrees of separation you are from the decision maker. Well, I was as far away from the, from the decision maker as I possibly could have been until I called. Pete Chopin was the broadcaster with the Mudcats, and he had been for a couple of years. He replaced Bob Licht, who was with the New Orleans Pelicans in the NBA and the Charlotte Hornets. So Pete had an unfortunate incident with his wife, uh, his wife had just had their first child. Her in-laws came to the Triangle, the Raleigh area, to visit. While her parents were there, her father died, and they, are, they were rooted back in Chicago. So this is February of 99. Pete decided, I need to go home and be with my wife and my wife's mom. So abruptly left the Mudcats. When we had that conversation, he told me the, the search was closed. Alan Garrett and Josh Wetzel were the two closed broadcasters for that job. They really didn't publicize it because, again, this is happening so quickly. 
So as Pete and I were talking, never met him before, or so I thought. Turned out, as we talked a little further, he went to Elmhurst College. I went to Millican University. Both in the CCIW were both the same age. So as we talked further, he said, you called Millican's games, right? Yeah. Yeah, And you called uh, Elmhurst games, right? So as we talked it through, we were both calling games probably side by side or close to it when Elmhurst played Millican in basketball and football. So then you had that first point of connection. Pete then says a few minutes later, FedEx me your stuff, get it here tomorrow. I'll put it in front of Joe Kramer, the GM of the Mudcats, and I'll see what we can do. So I tapped out the rest of my day. It might have been noon that day. Went to my apartment, put a, a really quick cassette reel together, got it to the FedEx, sent it out there. And then two days later on that Friday, there was a phone call with a voicemail left by Joe Kramer, the GM of the Mudcats, saying he wanted to talk. Good sign, but didn't say what the message was. So he said I w- he, that he was going to call back about an hour later. So I was supposed to go out on a date with my wife at the time, my girlfriend then. I called her and said, we're not leaving the apartment. We're going to order a pizza, and we're going to stay here and wait for him to call. So picked up the phone. I ordered pizza about 5 or 5.30. And, and this was when there were no, we didn't have cell phones then. I feel like I'm dating myself. We didn't have cell phones then. And in the time it took me to order the pizza, to then hang up, and then the way you checked that you had voicemail messages, at least in Chicago then, was you picked up the phone. If there was an intermittent beep, that meant that there was a digital voicemail message left. Hung up the phone after ordering the pizza. We're in for the night. Intermittent beep is on my telephone. Call back, and it was Joe. He's while you were ordering pizza? While I was ordering pizza. He didn't call back the rest of the night. And now I'm thinking, did I just miss my chance of talking to the GM of this double-A team because we were ordering a pizza. We spoke the next morning, and he said, we want to fly you out. And so I went out uh, two days later and came back and flew back to Chicago and had the job in my pocket. What are you thinking uh, in that span when, all right, it's not going to work out in Kane County. Uh, Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Where's my career at this point? Fortunately, I didn't have enough time to process that part of it. So the quick backstory was, uh, so right after the new year in 99, so about a month and a half before Dave Schultz calls with this job opportunity with the Mudcats, uh, I had, I think I had a couple of sales meetings on, say, the first Monday after the new year's. So the day that I returned, let's call it now the next Tuesday, people in the front office, friends of mine, came up to me and said, hey, I met your new partner for Kane County Radio. And I was dumbstruck. New partner for what? For my new partner? You, you met my new partner. I'm not supposed to have a new partner. So this is how I was basically told that I was leaving. And, well, I wasn't leaving. I was being told to leave. So the, the then GM of the Kane County Cougars met somebody at the winter meetings, Scott Fransky, and had hired him without my knowledge behind my back, not as my partner, as my replacement. And so when I called out Jeff Sedeby, the GM of, of the Cougars, and went into his office and said, what's going on here? He said, we're making a change. You know, you got a few weeks to figure out, and then you're out of here. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't a clean, amicable break. Sure. So, for, again, it's all timing, and who knows if, if Dave hadn't have called, if I hadn't met him, if things had happened several weeks later, probably out of the game, because at that stage... 
in February, every minor league team's broadcast is set. They know who they're... All the hires have been done. All the firings have been done. But but it worked out. So as I, as I came back from the Mudcats, knowing that I had the job, I typed up two different letters of resignation. One was for Jeff Sedemi. They basically said, I am leaving to pursue other obligations. And the other that I made 20 copies for, for the Kane County front office, was I'm leaving to go to the Carolina Mudcats, a double-A team, Kane County was A-ball, taking a, a, a better, greater job. Thank you for being my friends and so supportive. Yeah. So I don't think that went over too well, but I didn't, I didn't agree with how I was being uh, escorted out of the building. But I think most people in this industry probably have stories like that. Now, Jeff and I have made amends. It's been years and years and years since. But in real time, in 1999, a month and a half before the season begins, with no money, with a girlfriend who just moved from D.C. to Chicago to live with me, and now uh, maybe the prospect of being unemployed, all of those things made for a really high-stress period in my life. I don't like high-stress periods in my life. It's an interesting uh, advocation for the phone call, too. I feel like nowadays... uh, (laughs) A lot of people get stuck in, there's an opening, let me email somebody about it. If you don't call Carolina, like if you just sent a letter, I guess, would. And, I mean, there's email back then. But, uh, you know, it, if you don't call, you're not in that position. Yeah, there, there was email back then, but it wasn't widely used by businesses, to be honest. I mean, if I wanted to email the Mudcats, I'm not sure they had email capabilities. I know I had a Prodigy email account, and I had an AOL, and I still have proudly my AOL email even now. It would have been like MudcatsGM23 <laughs> at AOL.com. Right, right. So, so calling, talking to people, maybe a lost art now, but that was really the only way. And thankfully, things worked out, because otherwise, I don't know where my life would be. Once you get out of the game of pro baseball, it's hard to get back in. And at that stage, I would have been 28 or, I guess, 28 years old. Uh, Not ancient for this industry, but missing a year and then not knowing where you're going. And I would have needed to fill the gap with some type of work. I don't, I I, I shudder to think where that would have been. But that doesn't mean that life got a great deal easier than now relocating to North Carolina, where I had spent three days of my entire life up until that point and relocating my my girlfriend from D.C. to Chicago now to Raleigh with her not having a job and me having a job with better pay but still not good pay, not family-supporting dollars. So it just kind of transitioned or transferred life in a really strange position to just another state, another city, where you still are unsettled sure. and unclear on the future. But at least you still had a little bit of a future. You still had your pulse. So we, we just didn't know where things were going to go at that stage, but we knew we were going to explore it. You had roots, though, uh, after a while, because it seems like just in terms of time, you settled in in Carolina, mm-hmm. you did a lot of other things, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure made a lot of connections, and it, yeah. it, you, we talked even before we hit record about doing some stuff with Elon, and obviously you did a lot of stuff with North Carolina State. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go about attacking, all right, I'm this new guy here, I'm the minor league baseball guy, so you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not the voice of the Hurricanes who's coming in and this high in-demand <laughs> voice, I'm this guy who's got to pitch myself to get people to right. start listening to you, and, and if they had opportunities in big markets to say, all right, here's this guy we want to use. I think... Out of desperation, but not sounding desperate. 
So one other, one other shout out to Pete Chopin. So when Pete left to come back to Chicago with his wife and his mother-in-law, Pete was also the voice of Elon. So that was an easy fill-in because Pete now was leaving. He then recommended me because he was leaving them really abruptly. So recommended me to Trip Durham, who is the marketing and promotions guy at Elon, who oversaw the broadcast and said, he's coming here to replace me with the Mudcats. I've heard his stuff. I think he'd be a really wise decision to fill in for me at Elon. So that's how a little bit of it began. And then it kind of just came down to finally taking ownership of my career. Like I didn't, again, I don't like risk and I wasn't going to sit back and wait for people to hear me, listen to me, figure out who I was. I needed to take a much more assertive approach toward that. So I did. I, I reached out to a lot of people I'd never met before and had a lot of lunches with people who were cordial enough to spend a few, a few minutes with me, knowing that there may be no direct path to working with or for them, but it couldn't hurt to establish at least a little bit of a relationship there in case something down the road happened. So I was fortunate enough to get connected with NC State. This is a case where somebody actually did listen to me. The then GM of Wolfpack Sports Marketing was Jerry Record. And Jerry Record, you may know, he had a lot of connections to Myrtle Beach. So Jerry ran NC State's network. And NC State women's basketball had had a longtime voice who had just retired. They brought in a fill-in for a year. But Jerry had listened to a Mudcats game, and now I'm calling the Mudcats games. He obviously is big with NC State. Steve Bryant, the owner of the Mudcats, is a huge NC State donor. He reached out to Steve and said, would you mind if I reach out to your guy about maybe a women's basketball position with us? And that's how that got connected. So that's how that worked. But the Time Warner cable stuff that I do, now, now Charter Sports and the Triangle, I've done the state championships for years and years now. That was just reaching out to some people who I, who I knew or didn't know and having something to show them and letting them know that I might be able to help enhance their broadcast quality, do a little bit more for them. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's just those, it seems so simple. It seems so so obvious on how this, whatever industry you're in, that you want to connect, connect yourself with those best practices. So the people who are in positions that you covet or people who might be able to help put you in a position that you covet, uh, reach out to them, find out how they do business, and tell them who you are and sit down with them. And, but have a plan, not just, hey, we're having lunch and that was all great, but ha have a purpose behind your time with them because they don't have much time to spend with people they don't know and can't hire. So I think my, my business mind kind of came out on how, how am I going to market myself and what kind of plan can I have to work in concert with them that makes sense for them to say yes to? I wanted to give them something to say yes to. And that was me and what I could do for them and how I could grow their bottom line. That's generally my approach. I've always wondered about that, too, because when you schedule a meeting with somebody who doesn't necessarily have anything for you... Um, without revealing your whole playbook, uh, like what are the, when you sit down and say, I want to be able to have something for them to say yes to, mm -hmm. um, how do you approach that? And what are you, what are you trying to get people to say yes to when it's like, Hey, I want to, I want to work with you. I want to contribute with you. I know you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. Oh God. Now what? Well, I think part of the playbook is 
if it's a good idea that makes sense to them that either shaves expenses or increases revenue for them, I think most people are going to sit down at least spend time and say, okay, let's give this a listen. So I love business. I love, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I create a lot of projects. I just have, my mind works probably more on developing these type of things than it does uh, probably 50-50 on that versus enhancing my craft and my style on the air. I just really like coming up with neat ideas, neat projects that benefit everybody. So that, that's my approach. So like anything else, if you're going to any kind of interview, you really need to know your subject, know their company, know what they do, know what they don't do, know what they're not doing. So I like to present them with ideas of things that can help their business, even if they don't have that element of their business as part of it. So it's not, I feel like I'm kind of filling voids in their business. So if it, if it, if it puts their company in a, in a good light and it can grow what they're doing already and, and deliver some of the same, uh, I guess, fo- follow some of the same principles that their company has on how they, how they treat their customers, uh, what their message is, if it, if, it, if it checks off all of these boxes on whatever their business pyramid, their criteria is on serving their audience or serving their customers, then you might have something. And some, sometimes with owners or GMs or decision makers, they, they can be so down in the weeds that they aren't aware of really what they don't have or what else they could have. So I like to go in with not fully fleshed out ideas, but just kind of some general ideas on things that I can do with my, with my strengths and see if there's a match. And there may not be. Sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't. But at least it, it lets them know that if, if they work with me or somebody like me who kind of has these approaches, that they're, they're creative. They, they, they aren't just wanting to do it because they want to call a game or they want to check. They really do want to help enhance the company or enhance the business or enhance our stand in the marketplace. So every situation is unique. So it's not it's not uh, it's not a cookie cutter philosophy. You really it's it's no different than you researching for a football game. You're you're wanting to develop all of your different characters and of the players on on Ball State and whoever Ball State is playing. So I spend a lot of time researching the Indianapolis Indians for this series and the Bats and then our next series. But you need to spend that kind of amount of time and attention to detail for anybody you're sitting down with especially if it's you know, somebody who can help advance your career. You really need to know that and, and show that you're unlike anybody else. That you are, it, it, you know, when you're applying for these jobs where 300 people are applying for the same one, something has to separate you from somebody else or else you're just in part of group B. So with every job, it's different. But with every job, you need to figure out how to separate yourself or give yourself the chance to be separated for for a job or else again you're just part of the part of the glob part of 95 people that kind of sound the same kind of have the same resume that's the same you got to be a little bit you, you need to be much much different and unique to stand out in a positive way what are you saying to somebody like at like at time warner when you're saying like hey like when you get into in high school games um 
that's along that kind of a line. Um, I'm thinking minor league baseball. There are a lot of ways to approach that from a sales, from a multimedia, from social media strategies to all of those different kinds of things. Um, but the, the amount of things that you've been able to add to kind of your portfolio as additional things to that, you know, full-time minor league baseball job, um, what are you going into like a, like a Time Warner meeting with to say like, this is where I can help you beyond yeah. just showing up to be, you know, the voice of a high school championship? Well, I think so easily. So it's, it's great to be the voice of, of a lot of the championships uh, in the state of North Carolina. But when, when I sat down with Davis Whitfield, who now works for the NCAA just down the road here in Indianapolis, he was the commissioner of the North Carolina High School Athletic Association. I didn't know Davis, but I knew Q Tucker, who was the deputy commissioner. She was my color commentator doing NC State women's basketball. So you see how this all interconnects. But again, I went in with a plan. So I, to, not, this was not a plan to get on the games because I was already doing some. But my, what I think, I, I kind of take the position, I wear the hat of what would Davis want? What would Q want? What helps their brand? Their brand is helped by more exposure for their student athletes. Well, what can I do to further enhance stories of their student-athletes? Well, I can write blogs. I can write stories. I can go sell. I can put a lot of different things together that paint their schools, their districts, their communities, their athletes, their students in a really good light. I like doing these kind of things. It, 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 feeds, it kind of feeds my soul because I just like everybody's got a story. So why not find out what the story is of the third baseman for Green Hope High School in North Carolina and, and write a piece about them? And it's, it's excellent PR for the association. In most states, the high school athletic associations are, are really small-staffed. So they don't have somebody. They can't have somebody dedicated to putting all these things together. But if they have somebody who's willing to help and shoulder that burden and helps our brand and our image and helps our schools and those athletes and especially when you juxtapose that with the fact that local media in almost every market around the country now has less of a sports staff than they had 10 15 years ago they don't have the writers at the news and observer in raleigh to go do features on these athletes they used to be in every newspaper around the country on you know a couple times a week they don't have the manpower to do it now. They don't have the, the finances to do it now. So that also kind of hits a niche that now is, is kind of resurfaced. So they love those kind of ideas. So I've done some stuff for, for them regarding this, but I, I started a website that did exactly that for a few years called DNA of Sports, where I would find athletes in the triangle and interview them and write their stories, whether they're you know, Meredith College tennis players who start a bakery in their, in their dorm room or whether it's an ECU tennis player. Is that a real story about the bakery? Yeah, it sure was. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> yes, yes. And so that's, that's what I try to do as far as kind of presenting myself in a position where I can help and using my strengths. That's incredible. When you, I mean, that's, that's awesome that well, you've kind of built that way but, too. But you need, again, keep in mind, when, 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 I'm, when I'm at the Mudcats making 27 grand, and my then first wife is working a temp job, you gotta be creative at some point or else you're making your bed and this is what life is going to be like. Not that it's all about money, but I wanna do really good things for a lot of good people, align myself with people who 
who match who match my ethics and integrity and sure. and all of the different values that I have. I, I want to work with these people. I don't want to work with other people who don't match that. And I have in the past and they disagree. And that creates a lot of strain and stress and unhappiness and I'm not an unhappy guy. I like surrounding myself with people who who have the same ideals as what I do. Sure. So in the end it did help economically for the family. So, so that, that's a plus, but it wasn't about that. It was about, I'm trying to grow my career, and I think this is the right way to do it. And now, about eight or ten years after kind of taking that mentality and that approach, asked what the blueprint was, what the plan was, it's worked out a lot better in these last ten years than it did the previous ten years. So sure. I feel like I'm, I've tapped into something. And you play the long game with that, too, from looking at it from that perspective. Uh, I want to get into the nitty-gritty of uh, actually calling games as well. <laughs> Uh, and, and that side of the job, um, your perspective on calling a baseball game, uh, what makes one good? Not individually, but what makes a broadcast itself? What's a good broadcast to you? Stories. It's all about the stories, which I think is a lost art now, and it's getting more and more lost as time goes by. I grew up on Jack Brickhouse. And Jack Brickhouse told me a lot of stories. That was what his, that was what the center of his broadcast was. I listened a little bit to Jack Buck. I could pick up on my transistor radio KMOX in, from St. Louis when I was a kid. Uh, didn't listen a lot to Vin Scully because AM radio didn't transfer. It hit the mountains and the Rockies, and that was as far as we, as, as we could uh, pick up signals, overnight signals anyway. But that was that was the most important thing, and is the most important thing. And interesting story. So the first couple of years I did pro baseball in Clinton, I remember opening day, my dad came out, my brother came out. They were really, really excited. I'm the youngest of four. The brother I had come out, Doug, was the one who kind of got me on a microphone for the first time when I was eight. He was, he was the PA guy at Lions Park in Pontiac, Illinois for Peanut League. So one of the nights I went, out, went up to him, and he's sitting at this fold-out chair, cardboard table, and he said, do you want to announce the collection? There was a collection in between innings where they'd pass a hat. Parents would drop in a couple of quarters or a dollar to help fund the, the baseball association. So that was my first, first moment on a microphone. So Doug now is at Riverview Stadium in Clinton, Iowa, my first game. They both are listening on Walkmans. Game ended. I'm all proud. Run down there. What'd you think? What'd you think? Dad, of course, said, oh, it was fantastic. What dad is not going to say that? My brother said... I thought it was okay, but I didn't hear my brother. What do you mean? You were talking really fast. You were tight. I didn't get any sense of your personality at all. Like, the brother I know was not who I heard there. And it took me a couple of years to figure out what that meant. And the bottom line is it really just means be true to yourself on the air. My voice doesn't really change. I project a little bit differently, but my voice is my voice. My sense of humor is what it is, whether you think I'm funny or you think I'm the you know, least funny keenest in the family. It is what it is. That's, that, that's, it took me a few years to figure out that that is part of who I am, and if I'm going to be uh, genuine to my audience, I am that person. So whether it comes off great or people turn it off and say, I just can't stand this style and approach, I can't control that part, but it, I am who I am on the air, and I'm honest to myself. But it took me a couple of years to figure out how to integrate that into a 
broadcast that I was comfortable with. So that's how kind of that style began. <coughs> when I started doing TV several years ago, I didn't have a great deal of experience doing it, didn't understand initially, again, 10, 12 years ago, how the broadcast stylistically is different, the delivery is different, the, the content is different. So that's when I realized, my gosh, when I start doing TV more, now I understand what, what that needs to be. It's less about the play-by-play. It's more about what I like to call developing characters. Like if you're a writer of a novel, that's what my goal is. I want to develop all characters because I want to give a full brush view to the audience of everybody. Not just the ECU Pirates when I'm calling their football games. Not just the Durham Bulls when I'm doing their baseball games. Um, Josh Lindblom and his daughter who underwent open heart surgery a couple of months ago. That's why he came back from Korea. Our fans are going to hear about this because I think it's a compelling story. It's an incredible story of fortitude and family and strength and what matters. These are the things to me that I think if I'm sitting on a chair watching or listening... I'd be drawn in. I'd move up in my chair. I'd lean forward. It's not just strike three, double play, ground ball, fly ball to right field. That's why I loved the Olympics growing up when I was a kid, is I could start rooting for an alpine skier from Kazakhstan if Bob Costas could tell me a reason why. And the reason why, that, I mean, that's, that's the number one spot for me where storytelling is at its best. It, you may, it may have a better platform with baseball and radio, but all of these stories with all of these athletes coming together every four years of people you're, you've never heard of and you'll probably never hear of again. For me, just as a as a uh, you know as as a connoisseur of of sports and human interest stories, that is re- that's really cool to me. So. It took me a while to connect those dots as to, I am that person. All it takes is effort. So you can do research on Wikipedia for these athletes, and you can read up on media guides of such and such as a history major or grew up in this small town in Utah. But to really get to know to the, to the depth of the stories you want to tell, it goes well beyond that. And that takes hard work it takes a lot of effort on a daily basis because these stories change. You know, the story of Jamie Schultz with the Durham Bulls a week ago is not going to be the same story that I can tell for Jamie Schultz next month or in September. So you're constantly chasing new leads, new stories, redeveloping your characters, and that that's what my approach is. So I don't hear... A, not that this is the only way to do it. For me... It's the way I choose to do it because I think it sounds good. I think it makes for compelling TV or radio. But I don't hear a lot of other people doing it, and I'm not quite sure why. And there are people at higher levels who are not doing it, but they're at a higher higher level. I'm not, so I can't question that. There are people at lower levels, who some who do it, some who don't. It might be how they were taught. It might be maybe they maybe their minds just haven't grown to the point of realizing that it's more than just putting the headphones on and calling a game. It's, it's much, much, it can be much deeper, and it can be much more fulfilling. I mean, for me, 
when I when I find a really good story, and then I can go talk to these players and and get a little bit more background on it. I don't know. It just makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm doing a a service to myself as the broadcaster for the Bulls. Mm. It makes me feel like I'm doing a service to the audience because I think they will enjoy that. I want to branch off of that twofold uh, or in two different ways. Uh, The first of which is cultivating all of that uh, and how you go about doing that. Obviously, uh, I would imagine a lot of time spent at the cage. Uh, I always go to the cage when I go to Ball State baseball games, but there's always an interesting line for me where I'll I'll talk to them if talked to. I, I, I try not to approach them too much, especially if they're not standing near me. So I, I'm, I'm curious. And then, I mean, you can just straight aside interview them, but like there's a, you know, you can only talk to so many guys a day to, to do that. So I'm curious about that. And then I'm also curious on a second side of that is how do you cultivate some of those stories without feeling like you're, cultivating stories uh, from yeah how, how do you feel like you're just you're just talking and you're just creating relationships and you're getting guys to to talk to you not for the purpose you, you're not learning because you want to retell it on the air but you're learning because i mean at some point we get into this because we're genuinely interested yeah last point first and then you might need to restate the, the sure. first part again <laughs> i just was like nine <laughs> sins of question asking in there that's okay so yeah it's it's an interesting balance and and between between the athletes telling you things that you're not just mining them for data so not everything that we talk about is something that i'll talk about on the air but they know what my purpose is, and I know what my purpose is. So if there's a, if there's a neat nugget that they offer, they kind of know that, that we're always on unless we say, hey, off the record, sure. or this is just between you and me, because a lot of that goes on. But if, if there's something that, that, I'm, that I would like to use, that again, that I think the audience would enjoy hearing about, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a negative broadcaster. I'm not, I'm not there to blast players and call them out if they make mistakes sure but it's never personal so criticize the performance not the performer correct correct and so from from my perspective this is my sixth year with durham but i was with other teams for several years you build that trust over time and if they're and and every once in a while they may approach you about don't really agree with this or why did you say this or maybe second or third hand the story changes a little bit and it gets to you but I think I'm I'm traveling with these guys all the time we're spending 18 hours a day for five six straight months so they they know who I am I know who they are if there's ever an issue which is rare they certainly can ask me or if I have an issue with them I can raise it with them but it's just kind of building uh, building that relationship and that rapport with them. So my, my approach is with the Bulls anyway, because it's easy to it's easy to hang around the cage. I'm glad to hear you do that a lot. I would I would contend that you you would be better served interacting with them on a more kind of uh, assertive basis and not just waiting for them to talk. They may be just as nervous or or not wanting to talk with you because maybe, maybe they just don't like talking to media. Maybe, sure. maybe they don't feel like they, they know you very well. There, there could be a whole myriad of different reasons. But I've seen a lot of broadcasters in the Southern League especially 
who they thought interacting with players and doing their pregame duties was being on the field during BP, but back at the backstop. I can remember two people off the top of my head. They thought this was getting information and, and being the broadcaster, trying to interact. But they weren't interacting at all. They were just timid and wallflowers. And they didn't last, and I knew they wouldn't last because, the, again, the, they would just kind of revert back to a media notes broadcaster. So what I try to do is I have basically a five-day rule that I follow where within five days I want to make sure that I've, I've at least had a touch point with all of the guys on the team, which isn't easy because it's easier with the position players because they're at the cage every day and you can, you know, it's 45 minutes you spend and you may not be having 10-minute expansive conversation with them but catch up a little bit how you feeling what's your swing like family how are they doing the relievers are tougher because they're out in the outfield so that's the challenge so either i'll pull a couple aside just to you know chit chat here or there always with a purpose it's not just to say hi and get facetime i always want to make sure that i'm doing it with a purpose so whether it's a a couple of things that i would like to, to learn or how their side session went or how they felt like they threw and their start a few days ago but i always want to make sure that i try to get to everybody within kind of a, a five-day cycle why back to what i said earlier stories are always changing so i can't offer the same story on mike McHenry, one of the bulls catchers in early april as i will in, in early may Things have changed. His status in the organization may have changed. Other things may have been altered. So, again, it's effort. It's time. We all have a lot of other things that we can do with that time. But for me, that's a big part of what my job is. So so that, that's that's my approach, number one. Well, and the first part of your question was what again? That was it. There you go. Okay. Okay. So I guess I, I addressed both of those. Uh, the right way to tell a story, too. Once you have that information, uh, I remember back, and I don't know why this one sticks with me. Um, but I went to Syracuse, and there was a running back when I was in college named Curtis Brinkley, <clears throat> who was shot at one point. I think after he had turned pro, was shot and came back from it. I don't remember this, de- this details of the story exactly, um, but played in an NFL game with the Chargers, and Tarico had the game, mm-hmm. and and Mike recounted the entire thing like in between snaps, and it was like flawless and beautiful. Um, and people were, I just remember the, I. I remember the reaction on Twitter from people that was like, wow, he just did that in 20 seconds and got to everything and it was perfect. Um, what's the perfect way to tell a story for, for you? I wish I had the perfect answer to that. So sometimes with my stories, I'm too, too verbose. And the windiness of these stories, because you want to get in every salient detail you can, which stretches it out and suddenly you're up against a break or there's a double play that ends an inning and you haven't finished it. And that's something that I still bump into. I'm sure most people do. You try to avoid those mistakes. So it's, it's an art like anything else. The, again, this, this industry is not about just calling the doubles off of the wall and the game winning hits. The, the audience remembers more, and I've gotten a lot of emails and letters and people approaching me about, hey, that story you told me about Chris Archer when he was with, with the Bulls, I've told this to you know my grandson or I told it to my, my bowling partner or whoever. I, I get 50 to 1 more compliments on that than I do anybody saying, hey, I really love that home run call. So knowing that, we need to spend a lot of time figuring out 
not only telling stories, but the right way to tell stories. And I wish I were perfect at this, but Rick LaCivita, who was a producer for the World Series and the Masters and college football, he lives in the Triangle, and I've gotten to know him pretty well over the last several years. It's as simple as a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you need to know what those points are and how to go from one to the next to the next succinctly. Use two words instead of eight. Pause when necessary for emphasis. I mean, really, all the cornerstones of what makes a good story. Those make good stories. So use the right language. Expand your vocabulary. Have the details. Be right about the details. And allow, allow those elements to help tell stories. And we will stop right there with Patrick Keenis. Part one of our two-part conversation, or two-episode conversation, was the voice of the Durham Bulls. He will be back next week. We'll talk more Olympic stuff. And Westwood won and college basketball. He's uh, got kind of an expanding role now. I think it's safe to say with Westwood won. Um, caught him on the America East Championship, Vermont and Albany. Uh, this past basketball season, uh, but we'll dive a lot into his Olympics experience and what it's like to call swimming, uh, what it was like capturing the moments of Michael Phelps in his final Olympics and some very interesting ways to look at all of that. So that will come up next week. If you take nothing else from this first half of the podcast, though, the thing that sticks with me, I think most is when you meet with people and you try to establish connections. And this, I thought was the most important thing Patrick said. Always have something that someone can say yes to. Now, the harder part is figuring out exactly what that is. But I thought it was a really interesting piece of advice. Is anytime you meet with somebody, have something they can say yes to. So let that marinate for a little bit uh, as uh, we all try to broaden ourselves and grow ourselves as broadcasters. All right, Patrick Kinas will join us again next week. We will talk Olympics here on Play by Playcast. Very much looking forward to sharing that portion of our conversation with you. As always, you can find us on social media again at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet, J O E L G O D E T T. If you have a moment and you've stopped the car and you are at home, please rate and review the podcast if you have the opportunity. Uh, throw a couple of stars our way. If you'd like to type a sentence about how great or horrendous this podcast is, feel free to do so as well. We prefer the former, um, but we'll take honesty. So uh, ratings, reviews, that all helps us. Uh, for those of you that tweeted about us and talked about the podcast on Twitter this past week, uh, I thank you a lot because uh, that word of mouth really helps grow the podcast, really helps build up some followers, some listeners, and uh, continue to push forward uh, what we've got here and uh, kind of the the... the I don't want to like pat myself on the back here, but like the master classes that we can all share in this forum uh, every week going forward. So that'll do it. They're playing Marshmallow, which means I got to get up on out of here. And by that, that means that I started playing the Marshmallow music and I'm cueing myself because this is a podcast. We can talk all day. We're not going to. It's late. We'll talk to you next week. This is Play by Play Cast. My name is Joel Godet. We're out. <laughs>